Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm so grateful you're here and spending a little time with me and my friends that join me. Um, I would say each week, but I publish these podcasts whenever I feel like it. <laughs> sometimes two a week, sometimes zero a week. But I will just say um, this week I have recorded um, six podcasts. So I would say thank you for joining me today with this guest. But I was very, very excited to talk to Dre Baldwin today. He went from the end of his high school team's bench in basketball to the contract of a nine-year professional basketball career. And he is the author of 25 books. We talk about this. He's given four TED Talks, and he's all about the mental side, you know, sharpening your game. And his Work on Your Game podcast masterclass has over 1,500 episodes and more than 3 million downloads. So I really enjoyed talking with him about motivation, about discipline, about what, how our mindset plays into achieving our goals. And I, I think I got me a new friend. That's all I'm saying. We talked offline, and I think we have an idea for something we can do as soon as this uh, – pandemic lightens up, but, um, I think we, you will be seeing more of myself and Dre maybe doing some fun things at the end of the year. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Follow Dre Baldwin on the gram and at Dre Baldwin and enjoy this episode. Listen to the end because he has a free book for you. All right, everyone have a good one. Here we go. Hi, and welcome to the Same 24 Hours Podcast. I'm Meredith Atwood, author of the book, The Year of No Nonsense. I'm a former attorney turned writer, speaker, and Ironman triathlete. Although right now, all I really like to do is lift weights. We all have the same 24 hours, but it's what we do in those hours that leads to our greatest health, happiness, and success. It's my goal to crack the code on a life of less nonsense so we can all make the most of our 24 hours. So let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Same 24 Hours podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Atwood. I am very excited about our awesome guest today. Dre Baldwin is here. How are you? I'm doing great, Meredith. Thank you for having me. Excited to oh, be here. Yeah, so glad to talk to you. You have got a fascinating resume, an amazing life, and a lot of um, just really inspirational stuff you're putting out there. So I thought this is someone who knows how to make the most of their 24 hours. So let's talk to them. <laughs> so that's why you're here. Did you know that? <laughs> I think so. I think that yeah. quali- I think I qualify. That's yeah. right. I think you qualify too. Okay. So <laughs> tell everyone, so I've been reading about you and following you for a little bit since you booked. And um, I want to give the listener an idea of who you are and what you have accomplished, especially the the part about, you know, you love sports and sports were part of your life, but it's not like you just tried out for the varsity team in ninth grade and everything was just golden from there on. So let's hear a little right. bit about your story and, and kind of what led you into where you are now. Sure. So my background is always in sport, always into sports. And you know, I come from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, live in Miami now, but always played sports, you know, played the driveway, street ball sports growing up. The first team sport I tried was football. My family couldn't afford football equipment, so I never actually really played football. Then I moved on to baseball, tried that for a few years just because my friends were involved. My dad was involved in coaching, but I wasn't really talented at baseball, never really excited about it. 
eventually moved on to basketball around age 14, which is pretty late for someone who wants to advance in basketball. Didn't make the high school team, as you said, so I was a senior, sat the bench my one year on varsity. So at that point, nobody probably thought, you know, this guy's going to be anything as a basketball player, maybe in something else in life, but not sports. But I went to college, walked on. It was meant I didn't have a scholarship. Nobody knew who I was. I literally walked into the gym and just played my way onto the basketball team in college. This is at the Division Three level, however. So this is not a level that this is not where that sees the NBA or the NFL or any other sport. The D three athletes. These are the people who are playing because they can. But ninety nine percent of them are going pro in something other than sports, like the NCAA <laughs> commercial used to say. So after I, I graduated from college, you know, I had my business degree and I said I wanted to play basketball. And that seemed pretty far fetched because of my background, just a little bit that I've told everyone right now. But I had this idea that I could do it. And I worked a you know, couple of quote unquote regular jobs my first year out of college. I worked at Foot Locker as an assistant manager, worked at Bally Total Fitness selling memberships. Stop it. I did not know all this. This is awesome. Okay, keep going. This is what I did my first year out. And uh, Bally's out of business now. Hopefully it wasn't because of me, but I think I helped them. I think I brought some some customers in. But uh, the summer after graduation, that's when I went to this event called an exposure camp. Now, most people don't know what that is. Exposure camp is basically a job fair, but for athletes. But what you do there, instead of just walking around and talking and handing out resume, you actually bring your sneakers and your gear and you play. So I went to that exposure camp. I went there. It was in Orlando, Florida. Me and a couple of teammates drove from Philly to Orlando. That's about a 19-hour drive for those who don't know. And we hopped out the car Saturday morning, went right into the gym. And over two days, I played pretty well at that camp. Now, the attendees at an exposure camp are all the players who are looking to get jobs. The audience is not just fans. The audience are the decision makers from the pro basketball world. So these are agents, coaches, scouts, managers, owners from around the world who are looking for talent. So it's basically like a casting call for to give people some reference point. And I played pretty well there. I got the footage from that, those two days and the scouting report. And I did not get offered a contract at that exposure camp, but I did have the the collateral that said, hey, this guy's pretty good. So I leveraged that to go find myself an agent, Meredith. So that was the next thing to do. Now, again, people who don't know the sports world, agents work the same way that they do in the entertainment world, like for a literary agent, a movie actor agent, a model agent, they are the go-between between the jobs and the talent. So and I then they take all your money. <laughs> yeah. Then they take all your <laughs> well, money. Well, yeah, in the literary world, they definitely do. But in the, in the pro basketball world, ironically enough, if you're playing overseas, the agent does not charge the player. The team pays the agent and the player pays the agents nothing. A lot of people don't know that also. Now, in the NBA, you pay the agent a percentage. But when you play overseas, you do not pay your agent. So they didn't get to rob us. So (laughs) I I got my first agent through that. And that's how I started my career overseas. Now, there's a lot of things that happened from there and in between. But I'm sure we'll get to it. Oh, my gosh. I just love your story because it is the classic. Like you can almost take your life and if you hadn't shown up and seen the different tracks. I mean, you don't know, maybe you would have stayed with Foot Locker and become the owner like of 10 stores. Like who knows, maybe that would have been more fun. You you know, you don't want to discount any path, but it's just so interesting because I've had so many moments in my life where just showing up like to the exposure camp. I mean, you didn't just show up, you went there with a purpose, but so many people are scared to show up or they're like, well, it's not going to matter anyway. Cause like you said, Traditionally, people from D3 don't go on to the NBA and certainly not after they've worked at Foot Locker, right? So there's just this sense of 
like, well, why bother? Right. But you didn't have that. What is it in you that never gave up? And what, what message do you have for people who are like, well, I'm not the traditional track here, so I just won't try. No, the thing for me, Meredith, is that I'm always been very competitive and athlete. And of course you're going to have that competitiveness in you, but my competitiveness went beyond just getting on the court and trying to win the game. I, I was competing against the, the reality of the situation. The reality was people who don't make the high school team the first three years, you're probably not going to make it the last year. Or if you don't barely play in high school, you're probably not going to play in college. Or if you play division three in college, you're probably don't have any prospects to make it pro. Or if you don't make it pro your first year out of college is pretty much over. So there were so many times where it pretty much looked like, okay, the odds say nothing's going to happen with this person, but I was dumb enough, I guess you could say, to believe that maybe I can make it happen anyway. And I think one of the good things for me was this happened, this is in the early 2000s when all this happened. I started my career in 2005. It was before we had so much social media. And who knows if I was coming up today in the same situation, same circumstance, I might not have that same belief because I'd be hearing too many voices of people telling me why it wasn't going to work. But since I didn't have that, and all I had was just thinking to myself, there was no internet for me to tell everybody what I was doing. I couldn't share my business on the internet in 2004. It was just me. So I didn't have any, any dissenting voices saying, Hey, well, that doesn't, that kind of doesn't make sense. So I just had yeah. to go off what I thought. Well, and that's so powerful too, because I think a lot of times people, yeah, we put a lot of weight on the outside dissenting voices, but sometimes the loudest mm -hmm. dissenting voice comes from ourselves, right? That's right. And, and that's, that's the real challenge. So I came up as an Olympic style weightlifter back um, like 94 to 93 to 99. And like you said before, social media and before we weren't even using like video feedback. So you didn't, you know, put your phone to watch yourself lift. So you're like, I don't know if this lift looks good. Who knows? Let's get the VHS out and record it. And so I always think about how had I grown up because I love social media so much now, <laughs> I tend to go, well, maybe I would have been a better athlete if I'd had social media pushing me because um, I just was not great with the internal confidence in myself. And it sounds like you had that, you had that belief. And is that something that you really had to work on and cultivate throughout this period? Or was it just always a fire burning in you? It was something I definitely had to cultivate. So Meredith, you would probably know, and maybe some of your audience would know back in the nineties, there used to be this uh, television show called family matters. And their, like the star character of that show was a guy called Steve Urkel. You remember Steve Urkel? I remember Steve Urkel. I might have yes. asked, um, what's his name? I'm his real name. I might have invited him to the podcast recently. Jaleel White. Just, Jaleel, Jaleel White. That's right. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay, so you go. Now, Steve Urkel was the star of that show because back then we're talking to late 80s, early 90s, around that time to have tight clothes and glasses, you were a geek. And it wasn't good to be a geek back then. That was something to be ridiculed for. Nowadays, you're the coolest guy in the room if you're a geek. But back then, you no, know, that's how I was. I was this growing boy who my clothes were always too small for me because I was always getting taller. And I had these bifocal glasses and I did not have a lot of confidence at all. And it was only when you know, a few things happened. I switched, switched off the bifocals for contact lenses, which I still wear to this day. I started to grow into more of my body. And then I started to play sports around, again, around my teen years. And that's where the confidence started to grow once I started to play sports. And then I just got more confident just in myself with talking to people, dealing with other individuals. 
And that's where the, the confidence came from. But I believe that if we were to go even to a deeper level on a, a therapy type level, I think I'm always still that same kid, that eight, mm. nine year old kid who didn't have the confidence. And now as an adult, now that I'm not that person anymore, I think some of that is still in me because I, I'm not, I can't go too deep on this as I'm be in over my head, but <laughs> who we were in those ages, we yeah. still have part of that in us and where I guess you can say compensating in some way for lack of mm. a better term for who that person was. So I think the confidence that I have now and the fact that I can teach it and I talk about mental toughness and I fought so hard against the you know, quote unquote reality in order to make it in sports. I think that all goes back to my early years those single digit years. Yeah, no, I feel you. Cause I was always like this little fat girl. And so as an adult, mm. I have to constantly fight my fat kid, even though like, right. I'm still a bigger girl, but like, I don't think I, I don't give myself enough credit. And so, cause I'm always like fighting against that voice that like, you really can't do that. You really shouldn't wear that. You really can't. But that has been my internal battle to, to continue to try and grow that and not only blame that little girl <laughs> for things but to to recognize like yeah you're just a kid you were just a geek i was just a fat kid we're doing the best we can and to right. to fight that and to constantly grow while not heading in the direction of self-sabotage so do you see mm -hmm. like in your world a lot of people um that that still have that internal voice or dialogue from their the years that they were a geek or a fat kid and they just can't seem to move past it like they're really stuck in the past or can't seem to to find the motivation that's one of those buzzwords motivation i'm sure you feel the same way yeah. um you know i wake up today i just i just don't have the motivation i wish i could find my motivation um, it'll always be this way. It's always been this way, like this kind of talk. So what is your advice for people when you kind of hear that dialogue going on? Well, I think to answer your first question, yes, there are definitely people who still feel that way. Those are people who come to me and I'm sure some mm -hmm. of them come to you as well. So yes, absolutely. And over time we can, when I'm working with people, we can get to that part. But a lot of times we have to get through the surface stuff, which that's usually the thing that people really think is their challenge. But their real challenge is the core, those core beliefs and those core thoughts and feelings that they aren't even aware that they have. But we got to uncover everything that's on top first. And the older you are, the more that stuff is, that surface stuff that we got to scrub away before we can get to the core stuff. But to answer your question, if someone doesn't feel motivated, what I tell people is well motivation is for amateurs you know motivation is not the thing that you need anyway you know i tell people that a professional's job is to show up and deliver every single time regardless of how you feel even if you're not motivated because any, there's no professional out there who feels like going to work every day i don't care how glamorous the job looks uh, beyonce does not always feel like going on that stage when she's on a 70s city tour uh, lebron james does not always feel like going to practice but they show up and they deliver because as a professional, that is their job. And they understand that there's a lot of people depending on them, from the people on their team in business to their families, to the fans who pay for it, to maybe maybe the entire industry or the structure of what they're doing. Everybody, the majority of people are watching because of that individual person and they're supporting everybody, even if they're not getting paid for it. So that's the job of a professional. And I tell people, if you want to become a professional, you have to adopt that mindset even when you're a nobody. Even before anybody knows who you are, you haven't made any money yet. You have to adopt the mentality of I'm going to show up every single time and deliver regardless of how I'm feeling, regardless of the lack of results I've gotten to this point, because that's the only way you are going to ascend 
to the position of being the person that everyone depends on. And when they depend on you, they got to pay you. So that's where the business comes from. <laughs> that's right. Um, I had an interview with Todd Herman just like a couple episodes ago, but he talks about the alter ego and like how many right. professionals and athletes, especially, create like an alter ego character that, you know, when they go on the court, so and so that's, you know, their alter ego is the one who plays or their alter ego steps up. And I thought, oh my gosh, I really could use that. Um, so by the way, you're talking to Oprah right now in your interview. I'm channeling her at the moment. I put on my Oprah right. glasses for interviews. I always wanted to be on um, Oprah, so it's <laughs> I know. Isn't it amazing? What what a great yeah, day yeah. it is. She doesn't have a show um, anymore, so you took her spot. I mean, naturally, right. Yes. <laughs> but do you, did you ever, and, and this was kind of, we don't have to talk about this if you're like, eh, but did you ever use like an alter ego? Did you ever like, because I'm still trying to get my head around this. Like, is this a thing or... Mm. Is it more of a mindset? Like when I go out onto the court, I'm a professional, like you said, or is it, do you see the value in creating like an alter ego or is it just the mindset of flipping from an amateur to a professional? I think for the, the alter ego thing, I've heard of that. I've heard Beyonce is an example that I just mentioned. Right. She does it. She has an alter ego that she uses. I don't know of no athlete that I know does that. What I found with athletes is that we just get out, we just get into our zone. We just get into mm -hmm. whatever that zone is to perform. And I'm sure maybe that's what you did as well as an athlete. So it's not that I felt like I was stepping into a different person. I was kind of a different person, but I still felt like I didn't have the concept of an alter ego yeah. to even have done it, even if I wanted to. Maybe I would have <laughs> used it if I knew about it, but I didn't know about it. So for me, it was just the mentality of, like I said, I'm competitive. So I want to go out there and win. I want to perform. And I loved being in front of an audience, which is why these days you know, we got so many things we could do for an audience and the you know, professional mm -hmm. speaking. That's kind of like the closest thing to playing a sport now is getting on the stage and giving a speech. So yeah. it's always just about the performance for me, just knowing that there are people out there watching and they're looking like, all right, who is this guy? Is he any good? You know, can he play? Is he going to deliver? Same thing they're yeah. thinking when I step on the stage. Like, is this guy any good? What's he going to talk about? He's they're sitting basketball. there like, what's he gonna, do I care yeah, about this? <laughs> Yeah, like, this is a business audience. What's this basketball player going to tell us? And he made YouTube oh. videos. What's he going to tell me? So that mentality, I'm like, okay, now I get to go out here and prove something. So it's not really about, it's not even about the content. I already know the content. <laughs> it's about, yeah. I get to go out there and show them something. Oh, I like that. I like that. So um, I have a cousin and we, she's in her twenties and we didn't grow up together. We had completely separate upbringings we grew up in georgia she's black i'm white so we're mm -hmm. just family blood but like totally different experiences and so we started doing a podcast together and mm -hmm. i realized i was like oh my gosh we the genetic connection for the competitiveness despite the fact we did not grow up together that we are different races <laughs> the competitive gene is in our lineage because she goes do you know how you spell fun w-i-n <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh my God, I'm with you. Because I feel that competitiveness. And I think when, when you say I'm so competitive, I think that is a really big driver for just figuring it out. Like some days I just wake up and I'm like, I just got to figure this out today. And it's that desire to compete with myself or like the former version of myself. Um, even if that person is yesterday, <laughs> sometimes it's like, right. how can I do better? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So that's the best person does, to compete against. Right. Cause yeah, then you can't really blame anyone else. <laughs> exactly. 
it's all on you. Um, so tell me a little bit about your take on personal initiative. I know this is one of your, mm. your Ted talks that you've given. What is that right. the same thing as accountability? Like wh- what does personal initiative mean to you? Personal initiative is a little bit different. That can be accountability can be a part of it. I call personal initiative is your willingness to go and make things happen instead of waiting for things to happen. So, right, we talked about the very beginning. The first thing that you said was just the willingness to show up when it seems like maybe the opportunity is not there or to be a waste of time or you showed up the last three times and nothing happened. And then you show up again that next time and then something pops off. That's the personal initiative, just being willing to be the person who starts something instead of waiting for someone else to give you the permission to move. You decide to move on your own. And that's what that's what the leaders do. That's what the pioneers do is that they're the first ones to come out and do the thing. They're the first ones to say the thing. They're the first ones to try. And they're often the first ones to succeed. So that's what I mean by personal initiative. Now, accountability can be a part of it in that you take the initiative and saying, "Okay, I didn't get that outcome. Let me look in the mirror. You know, instead of looking out the window at the rest of the world, let me look in the mirror and see what did I do or what did I not do? Where can I improve? Where can I take some responsibility for the situation so that I can get better? Because at the end of everything, the only thing any one of us can control is ourselves. So if it's the coach or if it's the parents or if it's the industry or if it's whatever is getting in your way, well, what if they don't change? What if they don't Mm -hmm. change that rule? What if they don't come around to see things the way you see them? And that's the reason that you didn't succeed. Well, what are you going to do next time? Are you going to just have that as your reason for not getting what you want? So the accountability comes in when you decide to take initiative and take that accountability. Now you move first to say, okay, I'm going to own this. Let me see what else I can do. Let me find a different approach. Let me try a different strategy. Let me develop some more skills. Maybe I need to work on my game. Maybe I'm just not that good. And these are the kind of conversations I had to <laughs> have with myself. That's a hard realization, right? Like to come to right. the point where you're like, Maybe I'm not that good. That's like, <gasps> but once you see that truth, that's everything, right? right. It's it's like, oh, exactly. Yeah. And your hat and says, here's work on, what does your hat say? Work on my game, work on your game. Work on your game. Your, yeah. Work on your game. That's right. your, um, yeah. Yeah. So here's the, here's the thing though, Meredith, when you admit, or at least you're willing to play with the fact that maybe you're not that good or the idea that you're not that good, then when you go back to your training or to your work or whatever you're doing, you will start getting better and realize, oh, you know what? There were some areas for improvement that I had here. Well, when everyone, anyone gets to a position of saying, well, I'm a finished product, I can't get any better. Well, then that means you should have achieved everything in your in your field. If you haven't achieved everything, that means there's still some room for, for improvement, whether that's in your strategy, your execution, or just your overall skill set. But you have to be, I don't think anyone who's listened to a show like this would think that they're perfect. You know, so how <laughs> Most, do you get a couple of them do. They're in my one star reviews. Like you can go, you know, the one. Oh, those okay. <laughs> <laughs> I got a few uh, of them too. Don't worry. Oh my gosh, they're always <laughs> there's always someone, right? Um, yes. Speaking of wonder, working on your game, you are the author of mm-hmm. twenty five books. I just want to pause there for all my listeners because I have a lot who want to write a book. <laughs> we got twenty five <laughs> books going on right here. Um, what is the most frustrating part about writing for you, if there is one, and how do you continue to produce at that volume and level? I mean, I'm even in awe of this, like, whoa, 25 books. So I don't even know what my question is. I think I just want to pause and say, (laughs) oh my gosh, that's 
so impressive. <laughs> but like, tell me about your writing process and like, how did you write 25 books and what motivated you and what keeps you going? Because I imagine you're going to keep writing <laughs> if you've gone this far. Yes, I'm actually, I'm working on one right now, as a matter of fact. So as far as the books go, wow. Well, it started with probably around 2009. At this time, I was just making YouTube videos for basketball players. And they would just always ask me about my background because I'm this random dude that they never heard of, but he's making these videos and he looks like he can play. So they just wanted to know my background. And then I heard about the ability to self-publish, like Kindle Direct Publishing had come out right. and you can write a book and you can put it out and people can just read your book. And I put out my first book, buy a game, put it out for free. It was just a PDF. I just put it on my website, say, hey, everybody go download it. And people loved that book. And here's what's funny, Meredith, around 2015, when I learned about the ability to create audio books. So I said, let me make an audio version for every one of my books. So I went to make the audio version of that first book. And I'm like, man, this writing is horrible. <laughs> it was terribly <laughs> written. <laughs> I was a terrible writer back then, but people loved the book because it was the story that they were buying into. The actual writing skill was absolutely nothing compared to where I'm at now. But the fact that I took initiative, again, going right back to that same point, and I showed up and wrote it is what got me started. They got the ball rolling. And when I saw the people liked it, I got all this positive feedback. I said, oh, I'm going to write another one. And I wrote another one, another one, another one. And I just kept doing it. So to answer your question, the most frustrating part about writing is editing. That's the most frustrating part. I think <laughs> oh, that. I love that part. I should uh, send me your edits. You love I, I, I do. I love editing. I, I love writing too, but I love editing. I'm such okay, a I'll geek because I have an all, English degree. I just... every... <laughs> you have an English degree? Okay. I, I will send you every I manuscript I have and... and you can work on it. All right, perfect. I'm going to send you all my manuscripts via Google Docs and you can work on those and I'll just write and then you edit. And, and I'll just be perfectly happy because I, I love it. I love it. Um, so similar story. Like I, I've got, I actually have two official books, but one is a second edition. So I call it three because it was like a rewrite. Um, but I did the same thing in 2011. I told my husband, I said, mm. I want to quit my job and I want to write a book. And I was a lawyer at mm. the time. And he's like, President Obama wrote a book while he was in office. So I really don't think you're going to quit your job. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's not real fair. But it was a really interesting turning point for me because I was waiting for the perfect time. Like, oh, I got to quit my job so I can have the time to write this book. And it was like this whole right. mental shift. And he's like, hell no, you're not quitting your job. Figure it out. And so I just started writing and I said, well, I'm going to set a goal. I'm going to write this book in nine months and I'm going to self-publish it. And I did, and it happened and it was done. And it was the craziest feeling. It was like, oh my gosh, this is not that big of a deal. And I don't want to downplay it because it was a big deal and it was hard work. But when you just go do the thing <laughs> and then you're right. on the other side of it, it's done. You're like, well, that was kind of hard, but it, you know, it's like childbirth. I think you just forget, but it is always important to show up like back to what we started the podcast with, like to show up and just start right. writing. Like all of you want to write a book that email me and say any tips. Yes. My tip is do what Dre did, do what I did and start writing. Right. <laughs> right. So what was the hardest part for you to write yours? Okay. So the hardest part for me, and I'm working on a third now, <clears throat> I just got the clearance to, to do it from my editor. She's like, and we're not buying it, it, but get going. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. Yeah. You know, um, so it will be, it'll be my time, a time management book. Um, okay. same 24 hours type thing, because I'm, I have a lot of skills, but the best is my management of time. I think I have unlimited time. I think there's all the time in the world 
to get things done. It's just a weird thing I have. Um, so the hardest part for me is the idea that I don't have anything important to say. I am constantly mm. batting that away that like, no one cares. No one cares what you have to say. You have, you don't have the perfect life. So why do they care? I have to constantly combat that. And the way I do it is I go onto Instagram and I write a, like I post something that's stupid. <laughs> like I'll tell a story. Like just the other day, I told a story about a French fry on the floor, how I woke up in the morning and I wanted to eat it. And it was from last night. And let's discuss how bad that is. And so that's how I get through the moments where I'm like, this is not good enough. I'll post, I'll just write something dumb, post it on Instagram. People will laugh. And I'm like, if they can laugh at a French fry story, then I have something valuable to say in a book. <laughs> and, you know, maybe that's not the truth, but that's my big resistance. It's the ego. It's like, I don't really know if I'm important enough. And that's where I get stuck. Does that, does that ring a bell? Or are you like, no, I'll just tell them what I want to say. <laughs> I'm more in the latter crowd. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Good. Yeah. Cause see the thing for me, Meredith, I've always looked at it like books have a long tail. So once you say it, even longer than a podcast episode or something we post on social media because it like comes and it goes, unfortunately for us, at least for now. But a book, it lasts forever. You know, 100 years from now, people will be reading your books like, wow, and it's brand new to them. As long as you're with ever You're not content. helping me. That makes me panic. <laughs> no, that's is actually great because somebody's like, going to read forever. it and they're going to say, this is amazing, right? <laughs> that's the way That's the way that I look at it. Like, wow, this is, is coming around. So I've always been... I guess I always had that legacy mentality. I wasn't thinking of it as a legacy, but writing something that, you know, 50 years from now, somebody who never heard of me before is going to pick up one of my books and it's going to be brand new to them, as long as it's evergreen content. And that will last forever, you know? So that's something that you can hand off to your kids. You know, they can they can yeah. make money off your books, you know? Oh, that's a good idea. I can I can get behind that. Like, this is your retirement. <laughs> your mother wrote exactly. all this for you. Um, 100%. That's funny. But that's also, I think, what scares people about writing is like, oh my gosh, it's so permanent, whatever I say. And right. I, I get that to a degree too. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is there forever. Yes. But just say the right things. <laughs> say exactly. what feels right yeah, to you. Just, yeah. yeah, say what you're going to say. And the good thing nowadays is you can go back and change any one of your books and just put out another version of it. That's true. That's true too. Well, yeah. this podcast is called The Same 24 Hours. And I told you my concept of time. I think it's limitless and we have all the time we need to get what, what we need to get done. Like a lot of people don't buy that story, but that's my story. But I do know that we all have the same 24 hours in our day. And what we do with those 24 hours is what leads to our greatest health, happiness, and individual success. So my question for you, my last question is, what do you do every day in your life that you're like, this makes the most of my 24 hours? Do you have a habit, a life hack, something that you can kind of say that really makes a difference in my life? Man, my whole day is kind of the same <laughs> almost every day. So I would say the number one thing is just the time I take for self-care. You know, people ask me because I produce so much. And so people say, man, how do you regiment your day to get so much done? And it's not, it goes right along the lines of the theme of your show, Meredith. It's not that I work more hours than everybody else. It's just that during the time that I'm working, I'm working. But my first three hours from the time I wake up, the first three hours is all self-care stuff. And I didn't set it up like that. It's just the way that it works. So yoga, meditation, drinking water, exercise, foam rolling, stretching, shower, shave, looking at my goals, you know, reworking, checking my, my list for the month. Like, have I accomplished these things? What am I working on? 
you know, what type of person do I need to be? What kind of things do I need to do? What are the things I want to have? Those are my first three hours of the day, every single day before I start working. And that has, that's really the thing that gets me going and that fuels the work time. So that's always been it for me. Yeah, I hear you. I, mine's not quite as regimented, but um, same. I get up, I work out. Um, I'll right. read something, you know, inspirational. And that really is the grounding. You, I can tell the days I don't do those things because I'm kind of like yeah. lost <laughs> and kind of exactly. crazy in the head. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, Dre, this was a pleasure and absolute honor to talk with you. Tell everyone where they can find you and get your latest book. Sure. Can I tell them about the book they can get for free? Do yeah, it. Right here. All right. So this book is called The Mirror of Motivation. Are we on video? Yeah. Okay. So The Mirror of Motivation, The Self-Guide to Self-Discipline. So to work on your game philosophy, the first principle is discipline. So this is the book that you start with. And the reason why people start with this book, and it's funny because the book on discipline now, Merida, who wants to buy a book on discipline? Who wants to even read a book on discipline? <laughs> Not too many people, right? So let me tell you why you want this book, because everyone listening to this show has goals. You have things you want to accomplish. And if you've listened to this conversation, then I'm sure you understand logically that you had to do some work in order to get there. You don't get something for nothing. So most people understand these two questions. What do I want and what do I have to do to get it? And this is how most people spend their entire lives, doing things to get an outcome. And they just, that didn't work. All right, do something else. That didn't work. Do something else. Here's a question most people never ask themselves. Who do I need to be? What type of person do I need to become? How do I need to approach life? What kind of posture do I need to have? What kind of energy do I need to have within me? Because when you get the right being in place, it fuels and automatically controls what you do. And then when you do those things, then you get the results. So the process is be, do, and have. So this book right here is going to help you with that being. This is going to give you the frameworks for you to answer the question for yourself, who do I need to be? This is not me telling you, all right? This is not a hype up book. This is not Dre motivating you. This is the mirror of motivation. So you look in the mirror and you'll be able to tell yourself what type of person you need to be, do what you need to do, have what you need to have. Now, I'm going to give you this book for free. It's already paid for. All you do is cover a small shipping charge and I will ship it to you anywhere that you live. It is at mirrorofmotivation.com. Just the same as the title oh without the word gosh. there. That's mirrorofmotivation.com. The mirror of motivation. See, you guys come and listen and you get free books. Like, come on. This is amazing. <laughs> mirrorofmotivation.com. Thank you, Dre. It was great. And everyone can follow you on the gram. Um, I know you're on the gram because yeah. you tagged me. So, Dre, is it Dre Baldwin? No. Uh... Yes, Dre Baldwin on Instagram. Right. Okay. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining Thank us. Thank you for joining and me on this episode of The Same 24 Hours. Remember to rate, review, and share this podcast. It really matters. I appreciate it. See you next time.